You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is F-I-R-R-O-A-D-C-C dot org. Now for this week's message. and then I just turned it off. So hopefully you didn't hear me singing. That would be bad. Okay, can you hear me in the back? All right, sorry about that. But uh, again, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 if you want to open your Bibles there. Um, In 1 Peter, uh, we see the Apostle Peter writing to some of God's people and he refers to them in a way that's, that's very strange. And, uh, and I want us to think of ourselves in this way today as God's exiles. How do we live as God's exiles? This is a very strange way to talk about people because, of course, an exile is somebody who's been banished from their homeland. They're living in some place that is, is not home to them. It's, it's strange. It's different. Um, but, in fact, Peter says that is a way for you to think of yourselves is as God's exiles. Look at how he, he starts his letter to these people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So he's writing to people in a region that now we would just call Turkey. This different designations of, of that region at that time under Roman rule. These would have been uh, Greek people culturally. But he's writing to the believers there and he refers to them as God's exiles scattered there. And uh, we will find out in the letter of 1 Peter that they're under some pressure. They're facing some temptations, there's some things that, that are crashing in on them that might cause them to say, man, we uh, maybe should just give up on this whole Christianity thing. Maybe it's not worth what it's costing us. And so, actually, I think by referring to them as God's exiles, it's kind of ennobling language. It's a way of trying to empower them to help them see themselves as God's people in this difficult situation. It taps into some of that uh, history of God's people through the scriptures t- towards the end of the Old Testament era when the people were literally captured and brought off to Babylon and placed there. You think of the book of Daniel. And in fact, I want to share some bits and pieces from Daniel as we reflect on this, that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, find themselves in the royal courts of Babylon. And, uh, and they realize that they're different. They eat different food, they have different customs, they have different laws that they live by. Um, And if there's ever a time, and there will be times, where the laws that they abide by are different than the laws of the land they're in, they say, well, we go with God's laws, right? And that will cause them some problems. But they understand themselves to be different. 
And I think for us, living as God's exiles starts with taking on this mindset of understanding, being at ease with the fact that we are different. And you could imagine even some of the people that Peter is writing to finding it strange to be referred to as exiles because they're like, well, no, I was, I was born here. I'm from here. Born and raised my whole life here. How am I in exile? I actually think my own, a couple of my own kids have maybe an advantage over us, a lot of us, in terms of thinking in this way because they were born in a foreign country. Before I worked at Ozark Christian College, I was with Mustard Seed in Japan. Some of you have probably heard of that ministry. We lived in Japan for about five years. And two of my three sons were born in Japan. I think, do we have a picture of them? We don't, there we go. That's my wife and three sons. And my second and third son were born there. And it was a great experience. Everything went well. Um, and often when people find out they were born there, the, the f- next question is, oh, do they have dual citizenship? And the answer is no, because actually Japan is one of those countries that just because you're born there doesn't mean they grant you citizenship. Um, you have to have a Japanese national parent, or actually one of the ways you can be born a citizen is if we don't know who your parents are. If you just somehow end up spontaneously there, okay, I guess you're a citizen. So generally, you have to have a Japanese parent to be Japanese citizens. And if they wanted to become citizens... They'd have to wait till they're 18 years old. They'd have to have lived there for five consecutive years. They have to be financially independent, which that one's funny. I don't know how many financially independent 18-year-olds you know, but, you know. Um, They have to have good character. They have to respect the Japanese Constitution. And maybe the most difficult one uh, for people who are considering citizenship is that they would have to renounce citizenship of any other country. They have to say, no, I'm, I'm no longer... Uh, 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 someone who is from this country over there and has these rights and, and responsibilities, I give my full dedication allegiance here. And so it's a confusing situation because the first few years of their life, I mean, they live in Japan, they've been there their whole life, they could be there all the way till they're 18 years old and never have left the island, yet they're not from there. They're from America. Their citizenship is from America. They're family is from America. Their sense of identity is connected to that country, even if they'd never been there before. And then it gets confusing even when we move back down to to this area, down the road in Web City. We live in Web City. Don't hold it against us, please. But, uh, you know, we moved to Web City, and and then they start getting to know kids, and and they say, well, I was born in Japan. They're like, you're from Japan. And even little kids are like, you don't quite look like I would expect somebody from, especially a blonde-haired, blue-eyed one. Like, I don't I don't get it. So, so they've actually had this confusing situation in the early years of their life. Where are we from? But I would say, in a sense, that's an advantage because as believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, well, we're, you could be born here and raised here, but you're not from here. You're from heaven. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, later, even in Peter, he'll talk about us as a a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So we could live in Turkey, but be from another place. We could live here, but not be from here. And letting that sink into our minds, I think, is a key part of living as God's exiles. Part of why we should think in those terms is because we've been reborn, spiritually speaking. If we go into verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, In His great mercy, He has given us new birth 
into a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we are new people because we've received a new birth. We could be from here, or live here, but we're not from here because we are born of God. That's how it says it in John 1.13. Those who believe are born of God. Romans 6 says those who, that through baptism were united with Christ in His death, similarly in His resurrection. This entirely new identity. It takes a while for that to sink into our consciousness. Our self-understanding. I, I think about how in life, just naturally speaking, we cross these certain thresholds and we're kind of in a new status in life and it, it takes a while to, to understand that. Like I remember turning 18 and it's like the moment you turn 18, all sorts of things are, are new and different. You can vote. If there was a draft, you could be drafted. Um, you can go to big people prison. I remember that being noteworthy to me. Oh, it just got real. Like yesterday if I did something it was no big deal this today okay it, you know just that it escalated when you graduate from high school or college uh, you know teaching at a college every year May we have graduation and and I, I've talked to a lot of people and I remember even experiencing myself it takes a while to, to not think of yourself as a student anymore because your whole life in terms of your self-awareness from kindergarten through college your whole life has been oriented around this school year and sometimes it takes a full year before it really sets in when that next summer break comes around and it's like, okay, when's the time when we take three months off? It's like, you don't do that anymore. Now you just, it's life, right? <laughs> we keep going. Um, when you get married, big things change just in a day. Now all of a sudden your, your life is, is bound to this other person. I remember that uh, taking time for me to understand the, the implications of that growing up. Uh, I was very independent. Only child, single mother. I just I, I lived a very kind of independent life as a young person, and I remember early in my marriage, it was like I don't even remember what I was going to do. Just go to Walmart or hang out with a friend, and I just you know get up off the couch and start to walk out of the house. And my my wife's like, "Where are you going?" It's like, "Oh yeah, I guess somebody else would care now." I I didn't think about that. It it takes a while to recalibrate your self understanding when you have these status changes. Well, in Christ, we are new people, and thankfully, God has given us some things to try to help it sink in. Like I said, Romans 6, baptism, as this enactment of this spiritual reality that's happening. Later this morning, we'll take communion together, this reminder that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a, a dramatic shift has occurred for us. We are a new people. And so, that being said, it makes sense that there would be times where even as people who live here and work here and go to school here, there would be some contrast or some tension even at times between us and the environment around us. And in fact, Peter, just like in the Old Testament era with Daniel and his friends, there are times where, in fact, they're invited, called to lean into that further. Not to alleviate the tension, but to actually uh, just... Go all the more further into this life of distinctness. And the word the Bible uses to sort of sum up that contrast is holy. To be holy people, to be set apart, to be distinct. And so if we drop down at 1 Peter 1, in verse 14, it says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. 
Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. There should be this acknowledgement. Of, of course we're different. I live here, but I'm not from here. I have a father, a God, who himself is holy and who says, just as I am holy, be holy. That word holy is, is a pretty powerful word through Scripture. I mean, you think of Isaiah 6 when Isaiah has a vision of God and the angels are, are swirling around yelling at the top of their lungs. Of all the things they could say about God that would be accurate of His character, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's one of a kind. He's completely pure. He's distinct from anything else in the universe. And as such, He should be worshipped. And these angels, they find it worth their time all day, every day, to just cry out that God is holy. So loud it shakes the building. And out of that holiness that God has within Himself, His people are called to be holy. So we should just be at ease with the fact that we're going to be making choices in our life and we're going to have commitments within our hearts and minds that look a little different than people around us. If we experience that contrast, that's not a sign to us that we should change what we're doing. It's just an invitation to stay diligent, to persevere. Um, in Peter's context and, and to the people that he's writing later in the in letter, he'll talk about how they heap abuse on you. They accuse you of doing wrong, even as you're trying to do what's right. Later, he'll tell them, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. Of course, of course, there's going to be this contrast. And again, you think back to Daniel, of course, there was going to be some tension. Even in chapter one, when they're starting, when they say we can't eat all the same food other people eat. And then the guy who's put in charge of Daniel and his friends in Daniel one, he's worried that they're going to be sickly because they're not eating all the good food of Babylon. They say, well, we have our food regulations we got to stick to. But you try us. And they spend 10 days just eating what they would eat. And it turns out they're just fine and healthy. And, uh, and they were be able to sort of distinguish themselves from the other servants there in the royal courts. And you notice in Daniel, they aren't shocked at the fact that Babylon is bad. Like they know, they're not sitting around upset about how Babylon y Babylon is. Like, can you believe it? It's like, of course. But they are dedicated to themselves following the Lord faithfully. And, uh, and that causes them problems. You remember in Daniel 3, um, the, uh, the fiery furnace, um, the, the, uh, the friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, have this, this sense of, of conflict that then ends up getting put, them put in a fire. Later on, Daniel will spend a night in a lion's den. It's going to cause problems for them at times to stay faithful. But that doesn't mean they're troubled by that. They just stick to it. And I don't think that means we just sort of, sort of disregard the outside world. I mean, we'll have some things to say in a moment about that. But initially, I, I want us to ponder how this means, what this means for us in terms of, of rather than cleaning up the whole world out there, cleaning up our own house. You know, there's lots wrong in the world. We can't control all that. But we can, at some level, with God's help, control how it's going on in here, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. 
You know, and as someone who works in ministry and sort of stays connected to, you know, churches and ministries around the country and around the world, I mean, I get exhausted in, in despair at times hearing an, of another story of a ministry leader who has, who has, you know, lost their own integrity and made choices that hurt themselves and, and others and, and God's people because of a lack of holiness in their own life. Report after report comes out of, of pastors who abuse their power and, and hurt people in their church and, and are unfaithful to their spouses. I mean, it's, and that's, that's of the leaders. You know, there's lots of work to be done just in our own house to keep our own house clean. And, and so it's not that we just sort of disregard what the world is doing. It's just that we're saying we can't fix Babylon. But we can start by making sure that we live holy as God's people. Okay? And out of that holiness flows our witness to the world. We see this in Daniel. We see this in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 2. I said we'd mostly be in one, but here's a couple of verses from 1 Peter 2. In verses 11 and 12, the third time he refers to them as exiles, foreigners. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war, wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That through your diligent, steady holiness, even people who oppose us would say, yeah, but there must be something powerful among them. This, this contrast actually is part of our witness. Think of Jesus' words about being salt and light. Just a little bit makes a profound difference. You just put a little dash of salt and the whole meal changes. And you look back in Daniel. When Daniel interprets the king's dream in Daniel 2, he's the only one that can do it. He says, well, I can't do it, but God can help me interpret your dream, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked king, his response in Daniel 2, verse 47, is surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Later on, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown in the furnace and they're spared, this same king, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. No other God can save in this way. Even though their holiness caused them to have a contrast and at times even conflict with the world around them, the end result is worship for God. Praise for God, even out of the mouth of this wicked king. Later on in Daniel 6, it'll, it'll be a new empire. Daniel outlasts the Babylonian empire. The Medes and the Persians take over and there's a new king. Darius or Darius and he's the one that passes this rule that ends up da getting Daniel thrown into a lion's den and and he's actually distraught about it it's actually I kind of find the story funny because Darius has this horrible night's sleep Daniel's in the lion's den and he's he's up all night you know worried about Daniel oh my gosh I can't believe I got myself into the situation I made the rule and then my this treasured you know, servant of the kingdom gets broken, breaking this rule because he's praying to his God and now he's in a lion's den. And, and so first thing in the morning, as soon as he would legally be able to go check on Daniel, he goes and says, Daniel, are you in there? Did your God spare you? 
And I just imagine Daniel waking up, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I uh, had a good night's sleep, cuddled up to a lion, no big deal. Um, and as a result of his faithfulness, here's what Dan, uh, Darius or Darius says in, in Daniel 6, verse 26. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he, will, he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. Their faithfulness results in worship to God. Acknowledgement of the one true God. Now, it doesn't always work out, right? Sometimes the people of God actually got beat up, killed, and, uh, and even in their death, it brings glory to God. It's an ominous thing, but this is the story of the, pe- the faithfulness of the people of God through scriptures. Sometimes God spares them and it brings worship to God. Sometimes even in their death, it brings worship to God. And so we live this distinct, consecrated lifestyle to God. And maybe the watching world says there's someone, something different here. It's the, it's the long game. It's the slow and steady influence that we can have on the world around us. It's what a, a, a Christian sociologist by the name of John Davison Hunter calls a faithful presence. We just be faithful and present. We work our jobs. We live in our neighborhoods. We, we, we go to our schools and, and raise our kids in this environment. But we live a life that is distinct and consecrated to the Lord. And through that faithfulness, little by little, like salt, like light, like yeast that works its way through the whole dough, like a little mustard seed that grows into a big tree, we, we trust that in the end, people will see God is doing something here. And just to be frank, it could get worse before it gets better. Right? I remember growing up in, in, you know, in the 90s, it's like I just thought everything always gets better. I was just naive. I lived in that time where we always get, we get more knowledge, more technology, more wealth, right? And then it's like, oh, 9-11, like bad things can happen. Wow, that's surprising. And then 2008, housing you know, crisis and the economic implications of that. It's like, oh, things can go down. Things can get worse. They could get worse than now. Okay. Does that mean we just curl up in a ball and cry and feel sorry for ourselves? No, we say, that's okay. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And just as He is holy, we aim to live a holy life. And out of this, we just hope. We endure. 1 Peter 1.13, this last verse I'll, I'll touch on. It says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober... Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. We know it won't get all the way better until He comes back. So we don't get disoriented. We have minds that are alert, sober. We understand what's going on around us and we understand that there will be a Savior that comes back someday. And at that time, we will receive our inheritance. There's actually so much more that could be said about just this particular point out of 1 Peter. The, the inheritance that we have, this idea of being a royal priesthood, the communion and connection we get to have with God for eternity, 
because of what's been done for us in Christ, the inexpressible and glorious joy that we can have because of this salvation. There's so much more that could be talked about, but I just want to end on this note of hope. That part of why we can endure as his exiles is because even if it gets worse, it gets better. And even if it gets a little better in terms of worldly terms, we know it's going to get way better when Jesus comes. And so we live with this eagerness, this expectation, this perseverance that comes out of that kind of hope. Confident people, knowing that in the end our God wins. And He will redeem us. And we'll be with Him for eternity. What could you go through if you understood that you're immortal? What could you be able to endure? What temptations could you resist if you understand your destiny? All kinds of things. And that's what Peter wants for his people. That's what I want for us. That we would be understanding ourselves as as God's exiles. Not to feel sorry for ourselves, but to be emboldened. To live holy lives that witness to the world as we have this kind of confident, peaceful hope until He comes. And so in a moment here, we're going to take communion. Maybe we're going to worship some more. I I don't know what all goes on, but... I know there's going to be some moments here for us to ponder and reflect on on these truths. And so right now, I just want to pray that God, through His Spirit, would help this to sink into our hearts and minds. We are His exiles. Let's live like it. God, thank You so much for saving us. And You've saved us not to just extract us uh, immediately from the world around us, but to keep us here as Your witnesses as your holy ones, as the ones who live here but aren't from here, so that through our consecrated lives, wholeheartedly devoted to you, the world might see that you have power, transforming power, and that through this, uh, you would receive praise. I, I, I pray that even now, our lives would be a witness to such a degree that our coworkers, our families, our friends would see something different and say, wow, there must be a God that, that is one of a kind. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope. Help us to have confidence, peace, endurance, as we just slowly and steadily follow you until the end. All for your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.